Well, if you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me. Turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 15. <clears throat> you can find that on page 923 if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 35. So Acts 15, starting verse 12 and reading through verse 35. I want to start this morning by asking you a little bit of a, what might be a thought-provoking question. Maybe it won't be at all, but we'll try to spur something on here. When is it right to say no to exercising your freedom? When is it right to decide to, do, to, to not do something that you would otherwise be free to do? Is it, is it ever right to restrain yourself from something that you could do, but you choose not to for the sake of someone else? What do you think? In Galatians 5, verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes to Christian believers, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, those words taken by themselves seem to be very much in favor of exercising your liberty. We know that Paul wrote these words in response to the spread of a certain false gospel, which we looked at in depth last week, where there were teachers saying that in order to receive salvation, a person had to embrace the commands of the law of Moses. In particular, they were saying that a man had to be circumcised before he could be saved. And in doing so, they were laying a burden of guilt on people that effectively denied the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice. They were basing salvation on a righteousness that comes by works. In doing so, they were peddling a false gospel, which ultimately was start, unfortunately, was starting to catch on in some of the churches, especially in Galatia. So in defense of the truth, Paul wrote those words to the Galatians, not to give in to what these men were teaching. He tells them, cling to the freedom that Christ has won for you. Do not submit again to this yoke of slavery that comes upon those who try to earn their way into God's favor. Christ has set you free, so be free. In fact, he warns those who had fallen away from the gospel of grace to embrace this other message of a salvation by works, You are severed from Christ. This is really a warning. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, that last statement is immensely important for us in answering that question that I pose to you. For freedom, Christ has set us free. But freedom, true freedom, is not the ability to just do anything you might wish. True freedom is freedom to live in love and obedience to God. True freedom is the ability to live as God created us to, to live out the righteousness and the godliness that Christ has called us to. And in verse 13 Paul explains, for, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, which is Paul's way of speaking of our sinful nature, but through love serve one another, 
For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is not a sermon on Galatians 5. This is a sermon on Acts 15. But the, the two passages are intimately related. And as we seek to answer this question, is it every right to restrain your use of your freedom for the sake of someone else? The answer I think we must give is yes. Sometimes it is right. Sometimes it is right to say no for the sake of someone else. It is always right to say no when exercising liberty means serving your flesh. And it is right to say no when exercising your freedom would be failing to love and serve one another. This is one of the key lessons that is taught to us this morning in our text. In Acts 15, we are at an important crossroads in the life of the church. For some time, the gospel has been going out from Jerusalem into the regions of Judea and Samaria, and then beyond that to the peoples and the nations across the Roman Empire. It's going to continue going out as we continue to study the book of Acts. And as we see this happen, we, we have seen that in Christ the dividing wall that was between Jews and Gentiles has been broken down, and the church now had to navigate what does that actually look like. The fundamental issue here has to do with how people are saved. There were some who were saying that in order to be saved, the Gentiles didn't just need to believe in Jesus and turn to God. They needed to keep the law of Moses as well. But as Peter pointed out to the council, which we read last week, that salvation is not earned, but it is a a matter of grace, then the church, the true gospel was, was protected. The same gospel that we ourselves believe if we're in Christ. We see that salvation is received by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for all people. In our passage this morning, Luke tells us how the council in Jerusalem who met to to discuss this dilemma came together in one accord on the matter. And in doing so, they upheld the gospel of grace, recognizing that God had saved these Gentiles believers even as he had saved them. So this morning, what we're going to be looking at, we're going to be looking at some of the theology at work here, but more than that, we're also going to be looking at the way the council put doctrine into action. And as we do, we see an important balance between Christian liberty and Christian love, which we ought to implement in our own lives as followers of Christ. So if you would, please stand with me as we read our text this morning. Once again, we're in Acts chapter 15, picking up in verse 12 and reading through verse 35. This is the word of the Lord. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this word, with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord 
and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from that which has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when, they, so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, the main idea of our passage this morning, as we see the way the church implemented this decision and, and gave instructions on in how to live out the gospel, is simply this. Live out your freedom by following the law of love. Christian, you have been made free, so live out your freedom by following the law of love. As we look at our passage, it breaks down into really three parts that are going to be our three points this morning. These are not exactly points that you can just take with you and, and think about tomorrow, and all i got to do it this way, but rather these are points to help us understand what's going on in the passage itself, and then we'll draw out some applications from each of these. So first we see, as, this, as we make our way through what happened, as we learn what it means to live in the freedom of Christ, as we love one another, we see how the council came together, we see how the council gave instruction, and we see how the church responded in joy. So that's what we're going to be looking at together. Now, if there was ever a mic drop moment in the history of the church where everything that needed to be said had been said and no one could really add anything to it, it's Peter's speech here in verses 7 through 11, which we looked at last week, where he says, We believe that they will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as we will. That's, that's it. The matter has been very clearly solved here. And I, it, clearly, everyone who was in this council felt it. 
Because in verse 12, Luke says that this assembly, which only moments before was locked in hot debate, fell silent. And then they listened in silence as Barnabas and Paul told them about all the amazing signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles, among the nations. This was a really important moment in the life of the church because an issue had come up that required the church to work together for a clearer understanding of the gospel and its implications. Through this controversy, we see that the church grew and matured, showing that God has a purpose even when believers disagree with each other. God sharpens the church and grows it in maturity, and that is what happened here in Jerusalem. It would happen again years later at what happened at the Council of Nicaea when the church had to further understand how can Jesus be fully God and fully man at the same time. It happened again at Chalcedon and Constantinople and so on, as it has many years leading up to where we are today. After hearing Peter's words, a clear conviction settled on the men who had met here. God had clearly revealed that this gospel was for the world. He was expanding the tent of Israel, just as he had said in Isaiah 54, to include men and women from every tribe, people, language, and nation, to be a people called by his own name. The boundaries and the dividing walls that had been broken down in Christ, King Jesus has made us one in him. The evidence for this conclusion is threefold. First, Peter warned the council that they were putting God to the test by putting a yoke on the necks of these new believers that neither they nor their fathers before them had been able to bear. Now, that's a pretty stout accusation, but it's not wrong. In the vision that Peter had received before he was summoned to go to share the gospel with Cornelius and his family and friends, God had told Peter, Do not call common or unclean what I have made clean. The purpose of Peter's vision was to teach him and the rest of the church about the effectiveness of Jesus' redemptive work. Jew or Gentile, no one is righteous in the sight of God. We all need to be made clean. We all need to be made holy. And the only way we can receive that holiness, that, that righteousness, is through faith in Jesus. He is the fountain through which God's amazing grace flows, which washes away our sins. Jesus alone is able to pay for it, able to atone for all of our sins. He and he alone is able to make us clean. That was the lesson that had been taught to Peter, which led him to preach the gospel to Cornelius, his family, and his friends, in spite of the fact that they were Gentiles. The second piece of evidence that this was God's clear will was the way that he had poured out the Holy Spirit on these Gentile believers in the same way he had poured it out on the Jewish believers. In verse 8, Peter recounts how God gave Cornelius and everyone in his household the Holy Spirit in really miraculous fashion. They didn't receive the Holy Spirit through works of the law. They received the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. The Bible calls the Holy Spirit the sign or the guarantee of our hope. 
The abiding presence of the Spirit is one of the cornerstone promises of the new covenant that God speaks about in passages like Jeremiah 31.31 and Ezekiel 36.26. It's a promise that Jesus said was fulfilled by him in John 7 when he stood up and proclaimed in the temple, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John goes on to explain that Jesus said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were about to receive. The fact that the Holy Spirit had been poured out on uncircumcised Gentiles showed the church that something had changed with the work of Jesus. He had fulfilled the demands of the law. The promises of the new covenant were for all who believe in him. Otherwise, we would expect the Spirit to have, to have come only after Cornelius and his house had been circumcised, which they weren't. Paul and Barnabas added to the evidence of Peter's own experience, telling the council how God had continued to pour out his Spirit on the Gentiles as well as the Jews as they believed. They received the Spirit by faith, just as Jesus said that they would. And the third piece of evidence that really convinced this council that this was in fact the will of God comes from the mouth of James, the brother of Jesus, who is also known as James the Just. Now Luke seems to indicate that James was the one who was more or less presiding over the debate of this council. And after hearing Paul and Barnabas relate everything that God had done through them among the nations, Luke tells us that James addressed the assembly saying, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. That is a stupendous thing to say. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. That, so to the effect that the remnant of mankind shall seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Now the men who were arguing that it was necessary to compel the Gentiles to submit themselves to the law of Moses probably expected James to be on their side. He was known and respected throughout Jerusalem for his piety. Some even called him Old Camel Knees because he was so often on his knees to pray. But James doesn't side with the Judaizers, those who are arguing that you have to be circumcised to be saved. He actually sides with Paul, Barnabas, and Peter here. And his explanation here is a beautiful example of how Scripture is meant to function as our chief rule of authority in all things of faith and practice. You know, we talk about, as a church, how we prioritize the word of the Lord. Every Sunday I tell you, make sure you got a Bible because you're going to need it. James is prioritizing God's word. That's a pattern that we try to implement in our own practice. James takes the counsel to Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 12, and then he connects God's promise to restore the throne of David to the expansion of God's people to include Gentiles as well. There are other passages James could have gone to to make this point, but this one is particularly important 
because it connects the hope of God's covenant with David and the restoration of his throne with the calling of Gentiles into the household of faith. In Jesus Christ, the throne of David isn't just restored, it's expanded. Through the prophet Amos, God had said that a remnant from among the nations, all who were called by his name, would seek him and come to him. This is how God had determined to fulfill his promise to Abraham when he had told him he would bless him and make him a blessing to all the families of the earth. Through Christ, the door of faith is open to all people, and the promise of of Amos chapter 9 is that God's grace would be poured out on the world. The point here is that the church came together, interpreting what they were seeing through the authority of scriptures of the scriptures and that it seems is what ultimately convinced them that this was God's will that this was true God will never contradict his word God doesn't change his mind he is true he speaks truth his word is always true he cannot lie or he would not be God the same spirit who inspired Amos to write these words long before the council ever met. I love how how we've got this included. The Lord who says these things long before they take place is included there. It's the same spirit who met here with the council. It was the same spirit who was poured out on Cornelius and these other Gentile believers and who guided the church in this pursuit of truth. As believers, we must seek to follow this example by submitting ourselves to the standard of God's word in everything we say, think, and do. God's word is meant to guide us. It brings us together just as it brought the church together on this really important issue. So as the church came together, it also came together to give instruction. And that brings us to our second point. The council gives instruction. As they come to agreement on the issue... They had to also come to an agreement on what to do next. And in verses 19 through 21, James proposes his judgment to the council that they should not trouble these Gentile believers by compelling them to be circumcised or to keep the law of Moses. But he does say that they should write to them to abstain from four things. Four things. He says that they should abstain from things polluted by idols, that they should abstain from sexual immorality, that they should abstain from what has been strangled, And then finally, from blood. Now, this is interesting. Of all the things that James could have included to write to these believers, hey, avoid these, don't do these things, why these? And after saying that they shouldn't trouble the Gentile believers, why are these instructions necessary? Well, understand what's happening here. There are two things we need to take into consideration. Two things that I think explain why these instructions needed to be given. There's a moral element here, and there's an element of Christian fellowship, which is related to our main idea. The explanation that James gives to the council for why they should include these instructions comes to us in verse 21, which says, For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. James knew that following Christ was bigger than just avoiding four things. We shouldn't read these instructions and think that this is all Christ expects from his disciples. James's explanation for why he thought it was prudent to instruct Gentile believers to abstain from these things 
is clearly aimed at promoting Christian fellowship between Jews and Gentiles. So there's not a division between them. The goal here is to promote that unity all while embracing theological wisdom in the worship of God. These are things that would have otherwise proved to be major obstacles preventing Jews and Gentiles from having the fellowship they were meant to have in Christ together. Peter and James make strong points in what they say to the council, showing that in Christ the division between Jews and Gentiles has been broken down. Peter says that we are all saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He shows that all believers have the same Holy Spirit dwelling in them. And then James proves this from the scriptures, citing Amos, showing that this was God's plan and purpose, that God had intended to call from the Gentiles people for his own name, even as the Jews were. The division that once existed between Jews and Gentiles was no longer, but there were still things that would have been normal for Gentiles that would have most certainly have divided them from having a right sort of Christian fellowship with their Jewish brothers and sisters. And that, I think, is the driving force behind these instructions. James is not meaning to lay a burden on anyone's conscience, but he is advocating to the church, he and the elders and the apostles who were with him, appealing to these believers to consider how they were to use the freedom they had received through faith in Christ. The guiding factor here really comes down to those same instructions that we got from Paul in Galatians 5. We must never use the freedom we have in Christ as an opportunity for the flesh or for sin. We must always exercise freedom through faith in love. These are issues that would have otherwise threatened to divide the church. That's the real issue here. And as we look at the list of the things the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem wrote to the believers in Syria and Cilicia, telling them to avoid, it's striking to consider that only one of these instructions actually has anything to do with a moral issue, which is to abstain from sexual immorality. Now, history tells tells us that there was a lot of sexual behavior that was accepted and normalized in Gentile communities, which directly contradicts what God says in his word about how we are to use our bodies. Because these activities were so common and accepted in their culture, James includes this command in particular among the list of things that believers need to avoid. Just because the world around us normalizes something does not mean that it is right and James goes an extra mile, a mile here to emphasize to these believers, do not do this. The other instructions that are given here, they all actually have to do with eating. They are less to do with moral issues, although there is a morality involved, and they have more to do with issues that would be a barrier between these brothers and sisters, preventing them from having fellowship with each other. The council calls on these new believers to abstain from things offered to idols, from what has been strangled, and for blood. Now, in many Gentile towns, it was, it was pretty common for animals to be sacrificed uh, to an idol and then for the meat to then be taken and sold at the market for a profit. Although this instruction from the council 
would call on believers to have nothing to do with anything to do with an idol. I think in particular, James is thinking about the implications that eating food offered to idols might have for preventing Jews and Gentiles from sharing fellowship with each other. This is an issue that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 8. Brad read that for us earlier, where Paul essentially says that meat offers to meat, if it's been offered to an idol, it really is nothing because idols aren't real gods. And if a person's conscience did not convict them, Paul says, you can feel free to eat of it. But then in the same breath, he also warns the Corinthians not to do things that would prove to be a stumbling block for their brothers and sisters. When, when Paul writes his, his instructions, he's not contradicting James. He's merely helping believers navigate a complex issue about how we're supposed to use the freedom that we have in Christ by considering the needs of others and at the same time not allowing our own consciences to be bound by others and their convictions. The issue of eating something that was strangled or eating blood is again something that would have been normal in a Gentile culture but would have erected a major dividing wall between Gentiles and Jewish believers. I do think, this is an aside, I do think that it, this command to abstain from eating blood still stands, mostly in connection to uh, God's covenant with Noah. That's a different sermon for a different time. But the key theme to notice here is that James's concern and that of the council had to do with the fellowship between believers. Believers are free in Christ, free from sin, free from the demands of the law, free from fear, free from judgment. But we are not free to live in old ways. We are free to live in and to follow the way of Christ. That's the aim of the letter that James and these leaders from the church in Jerusalem sent to the church in Antioch by the hands of Paul and Barnabas and these two others, Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, who expressed all these things to the church. Besides giving these instructions, we see that they actually commend Paul and Barnabas to them. That goes a long way because at this point the church may be thinking, well, who do we believe? They indicate to the church that the men who had troubled them had not been sent by the apostles, that they had not told them to say any of the things they were saying, and then they tell the church how they had considered the matter, <coughs> how they had come together in one accord, how it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to them to not lay any other burden on their conscience except for these instructions. And then they finish this letter out bidding them farewell, saying, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. So in the end, we learn two important lessons from the church and its response to this situation. First, we learn to live by faith. We learn to live by faith. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, and we live our lives out accordingly. Romans 14 verse 23 tells us that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So if your conscience convicts you over something, even if that thing is not necessarily morally wrong, or even if someone else is able to receive that thing in faith, then it would be wrong for you to do that thing. At the same time, that does not mean that simply because you abstain from that thing that someone else should necessarily do so as well. It is not your place to try and control the conscience of another follower of Christ. If they are in sin, that is different. You have a responsibility to confront them about that. But if they're receiving something in faithfulness and in faith to God, which you are abstaining from, then Paul says, do not pass judgment on them. 
You are not their master. The second thing we learn from this is that we learn to live by faith and we learn to live in love towards one another. Romans 14, verses 13 through 15 says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you eat, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Do you see the priority that is there? You see, it's, it's less about the action and more about whether or not you are exercising your freedom in love towards your brother. There are things that fall into the realm of Christian freedom which you may very well be able to enjoy by faith, but which in doing so, in, in enjoying that liberty, you might actually prove to be a hindrance to your brother or your sister. So before you exercise that freedom, you need to ask yourself whether or not to do so would be walking in love towards them. Now, that doesn't mean that they get to decide what you do. But if you are destroying them because you want to do X, you are not walking in the way of love. These, these are things that get complex. And it takes wisdom, prayer, faith, right motives, and good decisions, good, good counsel to make those decisions. What I, what I want you to take away from this, I, I left it very broad. So as you think about this this week, what I want, really want you to take away from this is to realize that we are all held, we will all be held accountable to God for what we do. Sometimes it is right to enjoy something to the glory of God. And sometimes it is right for the sake of love to suspend that thing for the sake of someone else. Every parent knows that this is true. It's a good thing to get a good night's rest but for the sake of love, you get up and you feed that baby because they need nourishment and you love them. It's a, it's a good thing to have a warm cooked meal, but for the sake of love, you end up eating lukewarm food and soggy cereal on a pretty regular basis because love calls you to care for that child above your own needs. Jesus says that if we are to be his disciples, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. What did Jesus do? He emptied himself for us. He went to the cross. He went to the grave. And because he did that, we have life in his name. We are called to embrace that same mindset in how we care for one another. Jesus calls his church to bear with each other, to wield the truth in love. That's really what lays at the heart of these instructions of this counsel to the church in Antioch. Aside from sexual immorality, these other issues were really things that believers could have made a case were within their freedoms to enjoy. And yet, if they had, they would not have been walking in the way of love. That's the heart of the instruction, something that we need to lay to heart as well as we seek to love one another. And that brings us to our third point where I just want to briefly look at the response the church had to this letter. We see that they rejoiced. Paul and Barnabas and the others returned to Antioch with good news. 
They came with the letter and these other two brothers, Silas and Judas. This was important because it verified the, the decision of the council for the whole church. Can you imagine if, if Paul and Barnabas had just showed up and said, hey, we got a letter and we're good to go? No, there needed to be another, another verification on this. So we see two brothers, which is an Old Testament requirement, two witnesses coming with them to make sure they understood this is an authentic word and this is how you should proceed. The important detail from this that I want to draw to your attention is really the way the church responded to this news. Luke says that when they had read the letter, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Now, what encouragement are they talking about? James just said, avoid these four things. Is that encouraging? It was. Because it verified that we're not saved by what we do, but what we do matters. They rejoiced because this letter and the report of these faithful brothers commended the gospel of grace to them, which they had believed. And they rejoiced because these instructions were good, leading the church to live together in love and liberty in Christ. Luke goes on to tell us that Judas and Silas, who were prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words, and that after some time they were sent back in peace to those who sent them. Mission accomplished. The doctrinal issue that was, that was threatening to fracture the church and, and lead the church astray had been solved. The gospel of grace had been defended, and Christ was continued, continued to be glorified through the fellowship of the saints, Jews and Gentiles alike, all in one faith to him. No one likes going through controversy. What I'm glad to be reminded of in a passage like this is how committed God is, not just to the, the truth for his people, but the joy of his people. The truth brings life and light and fellowship. That's what we see here. The fellowship of God's people is precious. It's the fruit of the work of Jesus' cross. And God will not see his efforts wasted. He gathers his people together and makes them one in him. In a few moments, we are going to be observing the Lord's Supper together. This is an ordinance which Jesus gave to his church which is intended to communicate something about the unity that we have with him by faith. We've trusted in him for our salvation. But the Lord's Supper also does something of communicating something about the unity we have with one another, which we've just studied about together in the book of Acts. So as we come to the table, it's, it's possible that as we, even as we sit here, there may be some division between you and someone else here, some grudge. If that's the case, let me encourage you, spend a little time reflecting on the way that Christ has called you to love them in the truth. Let me encourage you to forgive them, reconcile with them, so that as we come to the table, you can come with a clean conscience. And then as we come to take this together, let us rejoice, all of us, in the gospel of grace that binds us to Christ in his righteousness. And let us do what Paul says to proclaim the Lord's death and the hope that we have in his life and in joyful anticipation of the day when he will come in his victorious return. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you this morning, our minds are, are, are there are many Many topics and subjects that, as we even just think about them, threaten the, and to divide the church. Things that are important to work through, important to talk about, important to consider, but which should not cause us to not love each other. Father, make us zealous for your truth. 
Make us zealous for right and sound doctrine. But even as we pray for that, Father, make us zealous for love. Help us by your spirit and by your grace to embrace the mind of Christ who humbled himself and emptied himself and was obedient even to the point of death on a cross to save his people and to exalt you. Father, as we consider ourselves, we are too weak to do that. But your gospel is greater than our sin and your spirit is stronger than our weakness. And you tell us that you are glorified in our weakness because in that your power is made complete and visible to others. So, Father, we would pray for your glory this morning. We would, I would pray for your glory in the lives of the people who sit here this morning. And as we think about your word and the lessons we've learned this morning, help us to live in the liberty of Christ and help us to use that liberty for the sake of love and obedience. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.